Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. Today is a really exciting day for me because my really good friend, Rob Wagner, and his buddy, Lance Ford, came out with an incredible book called The Starfish and the Spirit. I've been a fan of Ori Broffman and The Starfish and the Spider for a long time. I've taught this material. And uh, another friend of mine wrote a very uh, similar to Starfish and Spider book, but from a Christian viewpoint. I've loved that. Now this one is just dynamite. I can't say enough good things about it. And Ori Brockman even contributed to the process. And so I just want to say welcome, Rob. Thanks for taking time to do this. It's an honor. Ralph, in my book, you're one of the finest examples of a starfish leader that we have in the Western church. So I'm I'm uh, geeked that I get to do this podcast with you, man. You're one of my heroes. Oh, uh, you know what? When, when I first read that, uh, the fact that you actually like this book. Come on. I love it. When I first read Starfish and Spider, it's like it was reinforcing because what we were doing was so counterculture to the whole Christian deal at the time. You know, mega is best and big at any cost. And we were giving people and money away and and we were giving control away. That that was the big issue to me is Mm -hmm. is we would Mm -hmm. disciple and release and everybody else was discipling and clinging and trolling. And so that... I think you're being... uh, Generous with the word discipling and yeah, controlling. It's more like accumulating and controlling. Yeah. I know that Brofman, who wrote the original book, isn't a Christ follower, but you guys struck up a really wonderful friendship from everything that I hear and, of course, what I read in the book. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll get into the book. Yeah, it was actually Lance who first met Ori. They were at a conference that Neil Cole was hosting in Long Beach and uh, back in right after the book came out. Ori and uh, Lance hit it off. And then Lance uh, was uh, leading what was called Centralized at the time, which was hosting regional conferences. And Ori was a part of a few of those. And then about five, five and a half years ago, Lance pitched the idea to Ori. Like, what if we, you know, what if we take your ideas and really extend them to the church? Because Ori, you know, yes, he's, uh, you know, a tenured professor at maybe the strongest bastion for secular humanism at Berkeley. (laughs) But, you know, he's an honest academic. So he knows the church and the early church in Jesus were the first breakout example of actually a starfish movement in history. Jesus innovated this form of leadership. So he's always been very curious about the church, especially disciple-making movements and church-planning movements, because they are starfish through and through. And so he said yes. Um, And then about a year into it, Lance got another prompting from the Holy Spirit, and he invited me to be involved. And I was a super fan of Ori's. In fact, I read, I was involved with the disciple-making movement in southern India, and we were about three or four years into this movement. It was going multiplicative, like exponential. And in 2006, I read The Forgotten Ways and The Starfish and the Spider on the same plane trip to India. Wow. (laughs) It's It's like sitting with Jesus for 24 hours straight, him just working my brain over I don't know how to describe it. It was a transformative experience 
it felt like Jesus was pulling back the veil, helped me understand what was happening. And, and so now 15 years later to be a part of this project with Lance and Ori and Alan is something only Jesus could pull off. So it's been, you know, for me, like a, almost a 20 year obsession of why not here? Why not us? Yeah. You know, and people make a lot of cultural excuses like, well, it's different culturally in China and India and there's other dynamics that makes it possible here. And it's just like, are you, have you, have you, have you actually even tried it? Or are you just excusing it <laughs> so that you don't have to try it? And this book has come out of a lot of experiments, a lot of iterations, a lot of failures, a lot of, you know, bruised foreheads and bloody knuckles. And we were really starting to see some incredible momentum, Kansas City Underground. And I really wrote this book from my perspective um, for the leaders of the Kansas City Underground, but I wanted to share it with the rest of the world. And I know that was Lance's heart too, because there is this kind of growing remnant in the Western church leadership tribe. And I think COVID was sort of the the final object lesson moment of conversion. And there's, I'm, I'm more hopeful actually for the church in the West than I ever have been in my whole adult life. Like I, I do think there's some people that are genuinely trying to convert to um, a way of being the church that goes back to the original design. Well, you know, let me, let me speak into that for just a minute before we get into the book. I think if, if there's an advantage that they have in because, you know, they have these explosive church multiplication movements, disciple-making movements, then the advantage is the dominant anti-Christ Hindu culture. Same thing in China, where you're not going to be able to build a high-control network. You have to be a starfish just to survive. And so that does give them an advantage. We have the opportunity. We just never take advantage of it. The freedom that we have, we exploit to do wrong things, I think, for the kingdom. But, you know, you mentioned COVID and, and uh, you know, everybody realizes that COVID has been an accelerator. It's accelerating the demise of church as we've known it. I think it's providing opportunity. I, I'm reading a, a book, just finished it, by I think the guy's name is Kuhn. But it's about uh, the nature of scientific revolutions. And it's not a Christian book at all. What it says is normalcy occurs in science where there's consensus and everybody accepts a given paradigm. And so all research is either how do we exploit that paradigm or how do we Mm -hmm. support the paradigm? In other words, let's just keep proving it over and over and over and over. And then along comes an, an Einstein or, you know, some brilliant person who shakes everything up and they're treated as an anomaly. And so the job now of science yeah. is to to destroy the anomaly. Then yeah. a crisis occurs either in the form of some crisis like a pandemic or a crisis like this anomaly suddenly has gained momentum so we can't ignore it anymore. That can become a crisis. Yeah. And then there's a lot of struggle and a lot of people experimenting and a growing body of people begin to embrace something. And then there's a new normal. And I think we're kind of in the maybe the early stages, because I went through it in the 70s, where pretty much we followed that kind of a pattern. And I think we're seeing it again. And, you know, I see you and Lance and and Alan as kind of prophets speaking into this movement and this revolution at this time. It's exciting. I'm really thrilled with your book. Well, we stand on your shoulders, brother. And I think you're right. We're coming out of 1700 years of Christendom, and we're maybe 20 or 30 years into this missional movement here in the West. You know, it started with a theological conversation, and then it became more of a kind of a ministry philosophy conversation 20 years ago, kind of missional versus attractional. And then there's been a lot of experiments. And I think people in the prevailing model have looked at a lot of those experiments and said, well, they're not very successful. They're not, 
they're not winning as many people to Christ as we are in the mega church or prevailing model church planting. But the way I see it is, hey, we're at the beginning of a new age. It's it's post-Christian, pre-Christian America now. And just now, 20 or 30 years into this thing, I think there's some mature examples that are starting to emerge, like Tampa Underground and the Underground Network, the Soma Family of Churches, Hope Chapel. And it's and they're proving like this can be done in the West. Yeah. I look at it. Uh, I was alone. And then uh, along comes Todd Wilson, Alan, you know, Alan Hirsch, uh, the, the first book that he wrote, The Forgotten Ways. That's just turned the church right side up. I knew Neil Cole when he was young and, and, and actually he'd come to conferences. I did. He came same thing four times. I thought he was stalking me. And, and so I confronted him and, and he goes, let's go to lunch. I brought 11 people here. I think we were in Seattle or something and, and we became friends, but I, I see that, that today we're sort of standing on the shoulders of, I, I'd look at Neil, what he did. I even think you go back to the house church movement in England that kind of failed but it set a stage for something. And then, you know, Alan's book and and then what Todd has done. And now I see Brian Sanders and you guys really paving the way for the future. And, you know, I'm kind of in this situation where I'm this old guy. I'm actually, I'm I'm leading the church. We started it. We got frustrated with what we're experiencing. And, and so we started a a digi church on Sunday, Saturday nights. And uh, we're, we're right now about six, seven people. And, you know, we're, but we're watching you guys now. It's like, I'm in the stands watching the guys out on the field. I think it's really great. But I want to get into the book. And so I'm looking at chapter 10, talking about disciple-making environment ingredients. And the first one of these is outcome-focused. And I think the outcomes have been wrong for the last 40 years in most of the church. I mean, mm. we're middle class. We're either middle class white or middle class black. And everybody else can go to hell. You guys are are stepping over some boundaries. You know, get into that and just talk us through a little bit. This book is a series of seven different starfish. And we're hoping to make these starfish practices, principles, postures portable for just an average leader. And what you're pulling from there is what we call the, yeah, the disciple making ingredient starfish. In other words, disciples are made in relational environments. And Jesus modeled what that looked like. He had three, he had 12, he had 72. And we have to put the right ingredients into that relational environment. And if we do, it's like any recipe. You know, if you make chocolate chip cookies and don't put it in the baking soda, you get chocolate chip cardboard, right? (laughs) And so what we identify is five ingredients that we feel are non-negotiable. If you want to see a relational environment that causes transformation and multiplication of disciples, and you latched onto the first and most important one. And that first ingredient is it's outcome focused. And when we say outcome, what we're looking for is, okay, the, the father, you know, you could say he ordained our salvation, sanctification, Jesus accomplished it, but who of the Trinity actually applies it to our lives? It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, when you look at Paul's writings, our impression and our understanding is that he basically talked about two general areas, where the Holy Spirit will be active and we need to be partnering with him. Like Paul says in Philippians, what God is working in, we need to work out with fear and trembling. But what is God at work at? What is he trying to produce through his spirit? Well, there's gifts of the spirit and there's fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. What is Paul talking about there? He's talking about character, that we become like Christ. We don't just imitate him. He's actually being formed and shaped in us and through us. And that list of the fruit of the Spirit, I think, is the best picture we get of Jesus' character 
in the New Testament. And then gifts of the Spirit. And now we're talking about calling, that we're all called to make disciples. But within that, there's a certain cluster of gifts that God gives you that makes you unique, one of a kind. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says you're a masterpiece created for a set body of good works. So the Spirit's outcomes are character times calling. And my partner and one of my heroes, Brian Phipps, we worked together in the Disciples Made team. He, he actually came up with what we call the impact equation, which is character times calling equals impact. As I learn how to cooperate with the Spirit in growing in character, becoming like Jesus, and in calling, which is like doing the things that Jesus would do in the world, then my impact both in me and then through me, it increases. The challenge here is even where there's churches that say they have like a discipleship program, a lot of times what they're teaching people is just either content, like we're going to just do a data dump in your skull and somehow think if you just get the data, you're going to be different or be activated in the world. Or they might teach you spiritual disciplines, but a lot of times we make the spiritual disciplines an end in and of themselves. Like I start rating my whole life with Christ, like, oh, how many days did I do devotions this week? Who hasn't been there, right? And what I'm inadvertently becoming is a little Pharisee then. What we're teaching in this book is you get focused on the, on the outcomes of the spirit, and then you begin to practice habits to grow in the outcomes of the spirit. And then we also talk about the other ingredients then is it's got to be forged in community. You need a triad. You need the 12. You need the 72. It needs to be mission fixated. In other words, disciples aren't made in classrooms on Sunday morning. They're made in the spaces where we live, work, learn, and play. That's where Jesus did it. And then finally, we say it's content flavored. So most discipleship is content fixated, focused, obsessed. We're just trying to dump data at people. But content's important. It's got to be gospel-centered. And people need different content at different legs of the journey. Like if they're an infant in Christ or a child or a young adult or a parent or an elder, there's different content. But that's when you have those five ingredients inside of a relational environment, you start balancing them. Man, the Holy Spirit starts changing people and multiplying disciples. (laughs) It's amazing to watch. That's exciting. I was thinking while you were talking, kind of quote Rick Warren in that famous book, It's Not About You. I think we, we've made it all about you, being outcome-focused. The goal of the church has been to make strong Christians, but that's not the goal of the Big C Church. The, the goal of the Big C Church is the church exists for the world. The church doesn't exist for its members. So the members exist for the world. As, as I get further into the book, uh, I'm gonna, I just, this is a cool book. Um, talk a little bit about Jesus' criteria for devotion. And, and a high challenge that you guys wrote about. That's, I think it fits right yeah, in. It's, yeah, it's it's interesting, Ralph, because, you know, I've led in large churches most of my adult life, and I've run, like, really large church discipleship programs. And I, re- I remember what it's like to get up on a weekend, and, man, I preach my heart out, and I want to invite everybody in the church to get into this discipleship program. And then we gave our best energy to design this program, and and then you get six months into it, and you're like, nothing's changing. (laughs) Why is it like this content's great. We're telling them to go practice these spiritual habits. We're telling them to go reach their friends. Like hardly anyone's doing it. What's going on? What's wrong with these people? And the thing is when you make a catacall invitation like that, you're going to get catacall results because that isn't how Jesus invited people into discipleship. So what we talk about is first of all, Jesus was looking for readiness. Like who's hungry, who's available Who's teachable? Who's responding? And then there was this aspect of divine revelation. Like he went and spent a night in prayer and told us, he asked his father, like, give me the names. And then when he invited them, first of all, it was a personal invitation. 
It wasn't like he stood up in the crowds and said, hey, everybody show up Thursday night for my discipleship class. No, he went and locked eyes with men who he knew, and he called them by name. And the way he invited them is it's high challenge, and it's highly invitational. So high challenge is leave your nets and follow me. This is a high bar. And then highly invitational, he's basically saying, and I'm going to give my life to you. We're actually going to do life together. And so what we're trying to teach people to do, especially through Disciples Made in the Kansas City Underground, is when you invite people into discipleship, like there's a season, let's say in a microchurch, like in my neighborhood, it's like, hey, parties, people are showing up, they're, they're coming to watch Chiefs games, they're at our table for a meal, and you start having spiritual conversations. And, and then we invite them to start exploring the scriptures with us. But there comes a moment after the exploration stage where you need to look people in the eyes and you need to ask them, it's like, follow me as I'm following Jesus. I'm asking you to join me and learn what it means to fully surrender to Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus did it. And then you can see people like Paul, where when he goes to Ephesus, he's got his gang of eight. Like there's eight guys where he's like, come with me to Ephesus and I'm going to pour my life into you for three years. And, and then what did they do? They spread the gospel all over Asia Minor, like the churches that are in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Because Paul had a gang of about 10, really, when you include Priscilla and Aquila, you could throw Timothy in there, it's probably 11. It's like, who is Paul imitating there? Hmm, I wonder. He's doing it like Jesus did, <laughs> you know? When I read the, the, the book of Acts, I, I think Paul's the first guy who did it like Jesus did. We're looking at the church in infancy. It's immature. Uh, it it kind of does the mega church thing, and it stays very local. I get people mad at me. For two things that I love to say. One is that the apostles in Acts chapter 8, it says everyone except the apostles fled. They were the ones that were told to go. So they're disobedient and courageous. And you can't find a statement in the book of Acts that says anything about any one of them making a disciple. The Spirit did a leapfrog over those guys and got to Paul. And then later on, Peter kind of picks it up and, and goes from there. What you're talking about is very crucial. You're absolutely right, brother. I think... You know, in the book, we talk about two forms of mobilization that we need in terms of disciple making. One of them is what disciple making movements, which that is not unique to us. That is, you know, there's been kind of 40 years of research done led by people like David Garrison, David Watson, Roy Moran. That's about a very quick viral spread of the gospel led by indigenous people. It penetrates lostness among an unreached pocket of people. You see disciples being made on multiple strands, at least four generations deep. And then typically within two to five years, you see a hundred churches come up out of that. Mm -hmm. So it's a story. It's more like the Samaritan woman, you know, where it's like, bam, it just goes viral and a whole town is lit up. But there's also what you could call what we've created this new term movements of disciple making. And this is the goal is for it to go viral, but it doesn't start quickly. It starts slowly. It's like Jesus with his 12. Where he's like, I've got these religious people, and I got to deconstruct their ideas about who God is, what God's mission is, who they are, how he's at work in the world. They've got all these prejudices. They've learned all these religious behaviors that now they have to unlearn. And in the West, what we need a lot of right now is movements of disciple making. We have churches filled with believers who have never become disciple makers. And, the, and we're not going to fix it with a sermon series. No. You're not going to fix it with a 12-week program. It's going to start with a church leader who says, I'm going to do what Jesus did. I'm going to pray and ask the Father to give me 12 names, and I'm going to invest my life into them and go on a journey with them. But if you're a church leader who's listening and you really want to get in on what God is doing now, it, it's time to actually go back to the simplest thing, which is invest your life into 12. Yeah. 
And I know, Ralph, that you've built, like what you've done has been built around investing deeper into a smaller number of people who then you raise up to actually multiply themselves. Yeah, to me, uh, one of the, the shockers is that uh, lead pastors will say, I don't have time for disciple making. So I, I assign that to somebody on my staff. You know, I had the small circle inside the staff and I had the staff and our staff meetings were usually about three and a half hours long. And at least two to two and a half of those hours were spent in our disciple making efforts. And then each of those, if you're not going to, if you're going to be on our staff, you're going to already have led what we at the time called a mini church, which would be a micro church inside yeah. the circle. Right. And you only get to ever be a leader of one of those. If you're already making disciples, you're a part of one and they're discipling you. And then they decide, well, you can take my place while I go start another new one. And you only got invited into the process you're on the fringe and you're invited in and now you're doing something with somebody else and you're invited further in. It just has to be that way. You know, I, I'm a pretty simple minded person. And so I'm in awe of what I'm reading in this book. That's what's making it such a blessing to me, but it was a pretty simple process. And we just kind of, you know, we used the, the core content around what we taught on the weekend. And then what we did in the discipleship groups related back to that with kind of three little simple questions, but it was a magnet to pull people in, but it was also a filter to filter people out. And and, that, yes. and that's one of the things that I get from this. I want to wind this down, but as we do, I want you to end with the elevator speech. Sell me the book. Tell me why I should have it. But before you do that, there's a part that really got my attention, and it's about vocabulary, because I think vocabulary mm. is so foundational to the future. And, and you guys have come up with some very intriguing terms. Beneath the terminology, what value do you place on vocabulary? And why is that so important that our listeners would pay attention and, and start thinking, man, we're using the wrong words because words result in behaviors and we're struggling? That's a great question. You know, if you study anthropology, any anthropologist will tell you that language is always the building block of culture. And it's through our language that we shape, you know, metaphors and ideas. And so often we're using language and words that are opposite, inadvertently opposite of the mission of Jesus. You know, so how many churches have something like worship center, you know, over their auditorium? Now that feels harmless, but it well, what is that telling you though? Well, worship apparently is someone preaching and song. And it happens in one hour slots in a building. And then you go to Romans 12 and go, is that actually the definition of worship? (laughs) No. But when you pick that language and put it on the building and use it that way, you're actually teaching people uh, at least a radically reduced theology about worship. At worst, it's totally corrupt. You know, same thing with, you know, I've done this. Like I used to be the guys like bring, invite your friends to come to church, you know? Well, what are you saying when you come to church? What am I actually teaching them? I'm, I'm teaching them church as an event. I'm teaching church as a program. Church as a place. Church as a building. And I've had people say, Rob, you're like the Nazi, like Nazi language police. What is wrong with you? I'm like, no, this matters. It actually matters. You know, it, it'd be like you saying to me, Ralph, like, hey, tell me about your family. And I point at my house. Yeah. You go like, what? There's my family. It's like, that's not your family. Or me going, yeah, we eat pizza on Fridays at seven. (laughs) He'd be like, no, I want to know about your family. Like, what are their names and their faces? So in this book, when we're we're talking about how do you create a disciple-making ecosystem in your faith community? 
And one of the important pieces is, is language. And of course, Jesus was the master at turning a phrase, seeding language, creating metaphors that worked like a slow release pill that brought people into his way of seeing the world and his ethos about why humanity exists and what God is up to. And so in the Kansas City Underground, you know, we've kind of created our own lexicon. You know, we have like uh, certain phrases that we say over and over and over again because it begins to create that culture of disciple making. So thing like all the time we talk about like church is an identity. It's not an activity. Uh, we say you don't go to church. You can't go to something you are. We talk about you need to be on mission where you live, work, learn and play. We talk about multiplying disciples, multiplying leaders, multiplying microchurches. We talk about live like a missionary, plant the gospel. We talk all the time about extraordinary prayer and fasting. Character times calling equals impact. These are phrases that eventually you, you just start hearing normal people say them over and over and over again. We talk about we don't convert anyone. We bless everyone. And that language begins to create a different way of seeing yourself and seeing the world. Let me give you one more example. Most churches, there's a set of relationships they want. There's a social contract. And it's like, we want you to be an attender. And then we want you to be an inviter. And then we want you to be a member. And we want you to be a volunteer. And then we want you to be a giver. And you can do all of those things and never be a disciple. Right. And those, those identities, it's like, where's the volunteer identity in the Bible? I missed that one. I, you know what I'm saying? Where's my identity as being a attender? in the Bible. So we use different language. We say, you're a missionary. And we explain to people, a missionary is an ordinary person who plants themselves and plants the gospel among an unreached pocket people and makes new disciples. And so in the underground, you can't be an attender. You can't be a volunteer. That We don't have any opportunities for attenders or volunteers. Uh, but you can be a missionary. We have a missionary commitment. And so it changes the call, changes the expectation. And it's very important to disciple them. Oh, that's really good. I would, I just want to say thank you for taking time to do this. And I mean, I feel honored that you would you'd meet with me and on this little old podcast that I do. But I, I, I do want you to give me the elevator speech. If, if you can give me, you know, 40 seconds of why <laughs> if there's somebody out there who's thinking, well, should I do this? You know, do I pay attention to this guy or not? Yeah. You know, let, let me have it. Well, I would say, you bet. If you're a church leader and, you know, COVID's hit, and you know it's kind of reset everything, and you're wondering, how do I lead in this new world? Because the centralized form of church that's organized around a personality and weekend services and programs, we've seen the total vulnerability of that, how absolutely fragile it is. But most pastors have only been taught how to lead in the centralized form of the church. That's all they've ever been taught. This book exists to, in a very practical way, show you how to lead in a starfish way. So a spider, you chop the head off the spider, the spider's dead. A starfish, you chop the head, quote unquote, off a starfish, you get two starfish. And that's the Jesus model. Every disciple is meant to be a disciple who can make disciples. There's a, a forest inside every seed. So if you want to learn the decentralized way of leading, this book is going to give you seven starfish, and they're very practical. It's going to help you reimagine church, then learn how to create a culture for multiplying leaders in a decentralized way. And then also how to create a culture for multiplying disciples. And we literally wrote it thinking it would be out like three years ago. But there are all these delays, and we know they weren't delays now. That the Lord wanted this book to be out on the backside of COVID. And we, if you're a church leader, we literally just want to wash your feet. We're not going to beat you up or make you feel bad about yourself. We literally just want to wash your feet and help you 
find your way in this post-COVID world where decentralized leadership now is no longer like a cool novel idea. It's essential. So that's why we wrote it, brother. Well, that's wonderful. I so appreciate you taking time to do this. Thanks, thanks, thanks. Are you kidding? It's an honor. I love you so much and respect you. And thank, thanks for uh, believing in us and believing in this book. And like I said, for being an embodiment of what it means to be a starfish leader. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.